Shakespeare is not exactly hip with the teens. So, <laughs> Welcome to Talking Simulator, a series of short conversations about video games with interesting people who play them. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and in this episode, I discuss the time-looping Shakespearean tragedy game, Elsinore, with my guest, Katie Chironis. Hi, I'm Katie Chironis. I am the writer and the team lead on Elsinore with my small company of friends called Golden Glitch. And by day, I work as a game and narrative designer in the commercial video game industry and have for uh, almost a decade now. I've recently become really interested in time loop narratives, and especially how well suited they are to video games. And a Shakespearean tragedy seems particularly apt. As Katie told me the last time I interviewed her, tragic characters are often ones who try and try but cannot do anything right. And if anyone thinks the tragic events of Hamlet could have been avoided, this game is a way for them to give it their best shot. As always, if you want to play Elsinore and go into it with no idea of what to expect, then save this episode for later. However, I don't think the one or two minor spoilers we mentioned in this conversation would ruin anyone's enjoyment of the game. Elsinore condenses the events of Hamlet down to four days. You play as Ophelia, and every time she dies or fails to avert disaster, she wakes up again at the beginning of those four days. All she keeps is the knowledge she gains in each loop, and much of what you do in the game is choose which pieces of knowledge to reveal to which characters and when, and watch what happens as a result. Elsinore is an incredibly clever social simulation, and Katie has been working on it as a side project for more than half of her 10-year career in games. Almost a decade, gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah, you must have seen a lot of changes. Uh, yeah, and as mostly positive, I think, over the last few years especially. I think a lot's changed in the last five. It's been, I'm, I'm actually kind of like half scared, half excited for the next five. What would you say has been the biggest change in the industry in the time you've been working in it, whether positive or negative? I would say, okay, so I... I think there's sort of a whole bucket of labor issues changes that are coming, especially for large commercial companies. But I think I'm going to set that one aside because the one that I find particularly interesting is uh, the change and growth in the indie game market. Mm. So over the last five years, uh, engines like uh, Unreal Engine 4 and Unity, which a lot of game developers use to make games, have become really cheap and accessible to a larger group than they used to be. And this is allowing all kinds of people to make independent games that never, ever could have done this 10 years ago. You used to have to make your own engine, and then you would also make the game on top of the engine that you just made, which was sort of a really high technical bar to entry. And um, that's sort of changed over the last five years to the point where you even have kids as young as, you know, eight years old learning to make their first game in a, an engine that is sort of industry standard. And I think that's sort of like opened the floodgates for this almost renaissance in all kinds of games that you just wouldn't have seen a decade ago. Right. And you worked on Elsinore for like six or seven years. Do you feel like that change and that move towards indie games helped you at all in developing the game? Yeah, I think it did. I really, I, we started off with Elsinore in Unity and uh, had proficiency in Unity already because we had worked on Unity games in college when we were friends. And um, I was actually talking to some of my coworkers at my job, at my day job, who have been in the games industry for much longer, some of them like 20 years. And one of them was saying to me, he's like, you know, I can't, I was thinking to myself, why didn't I do that when I was her age? And then I realized it's because we just didn't have the technology. We couldn't do things like that when we were in school. And so I think really being able to just make small games very easily and uh, cheaply and quickly with my friends in college is kind of what led to the, the jumping off point for Elsinore. 
So six or seven years is a really, really long time to be working on something, especially kind of in your free time while you had a full-time job. How did you balance working on the project alongside your day job? What was it like for you? (laughs) We balanced it very delicately. Um, So the first thing to know is that often game companies, commercial game companies, try to discourage workers from working on side projects. I think with with valid reason, because uh, sometimes it can lead to employees trying to kickstart their next business venture while they're still working for some other company. But in our case, I think that all of our employers are pretty understanding because this is really Elsinore is not really the kind of game that you would found a a business on, right? It's, you know, Shakespeare is not exactly hip with the teens. So (laughs) we didn't have a ton to worry about there. So the first step was just getting permission from from our our current companies, you know, past and present uh, to be able to work on this thing. And so once that was secured, the next big thing is really just about keeping everybody motivated and happy. We pay our contractors and we pay them really well. But um, outside of that, those of us who were core sort of LLC members and partners in the business, we weren't getting paid. So we have been working on this. It's really been a labor of love to a large extent. And the most important thing was just making sure that everybody felt respected and heard and that when we needed to have a really difficult conversation, we had it as a group and we make all nearly all business decisions jointly as a group. Uh, Nothing gets made by me. Like, you know, I'm technically the team lead, but really it is a democracy in every sense of the word. Because if, if you're not happy working on a side project and you're not making any income from it, you have no incentive to stick around if you don't if you don't like what you're doing. So making sure that everybody was happy and cared for was the most important thing. And how many other people ended up working on the game and kind of at what points did they come on board? So there are seven of us that are core members. So Connor and I were the two original collaborators on this. We started on Elsinore as part of a college game jam where it was a one week game jam and the theme of the jam was Shakespeare. So... <laughs> I was in a a tragedies course at that time and also was in several game design courses and we got together and I was sort of like, hey, I want to do this thing with Ophelia where she's really the protagonist and she's trying to stop the tragedy of Hamlet. And we actually didn't have the concept of a time loop at that point. It was just sort of like a 2D side-scrolling adventure game where you'd move around the castle and click on people and have quick conversations with them. And there wasn't any notion of like a time or a clock system or anything like that. You would just sort of try to dialogue tree your way through and then if you failed, you failed. And if you succeeded, you succeeded. And that was it. And so Connor and I started on that for this jam and we didn't, we didn't quite get there. It was just a really clearly a big project for the amount of time we had. So we put that aside and we finished out school. And then uh, a couple, I think it was a year out of school, we were doing a different game jam together called Molly Jam. And it was just like myself, Connor, and uh, Eric Butler, who is now one of our engineers, just jamming on this tiny game in Connor's parents' basement. And it was super hot and it was the middle of the summer and it was just like our weekend off. So we made this little game together and then when we finished up, Connor and I were like, you know, we really like should revive that Elsinore thing that we started. But that was pretty cool. And you know, now we have Eric here in Seattle because he's finishing out his PhD. Maybe we could pull him in. And then we pulled in Eric and Eric was like, hey, you know, uh, Eric's 
girlfriend, Kristen, also happens to be an incredibly talented uh, AI engineer, uh, getting her PhD as well. So uh, we pulled her in as well pretty quickly because <laughs> two uh, social AI engineers is better than one. Um, <laughs> as the saying goes. <laughs> yeah, as the saying goes. And uh, so Eric and Kristen came aboard and Val was one of our friends in school. She's a really talented uh, technical artist and uh, she works at ArenaNet right now. And so uh, she came on to do basically all of our tech artwork and also some of our just environment artwork. Hmm. And so shortly after that, I had a friend of a friend, Wes, who is now our art director, and he was taking a break from the games industry to be a full-time yoga teacher. And he was like, I don't know if I'm going to go back into game art. It was really stressful. It was really intense. And I was like, well, I mean, while you're figuring it out, do you want to do some art direction on Elsinore? And he was like, sure, why not? You know, I have time. <laughs> And so actually that ended up leading to him getting back into the games industry. And he was the art director on Outer Wilds, a different time looping game that came out recently. So Wow, so we have you to thank. I, I, I guess in, in part. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Wes is, Wes is really talented, but he, uh, he's been doing double duty on both games this whole time. It's incredible that we've got someone now who is a time loop game expert. Yeah. It doesn't feel like there are enough time loop games for that to happen. But, and yet here we are. Why do you think that there are so many time loop games at the moment? You know, that's an interesting question. I feel like we are living in a time where people often will say things feel quite dark. Like we've had dark and light periods in history, I guess, but none really this dark, I feel like, since the birth of the internet. And this is kind of allowing us all to sort of collectively fantasize about what would happen if things could be different. And I think simultaneously, the rise the rise of games as a medium allow you to create experiences where you can imagine what the world would be like if you had chosen a different path or chosen to save someone over someone else. And we're living in a, a world where generations of people who are now adults have grown up with those kinds of media experiences. And so they're able to imagine alternative worlds to this one. And I think that that fantasy, that if you could just go back and make a different decision and everything would be okay. It actually feels like it's a form of like fantasy that gives you some agency and power and control over your own life because you can see every decision that you make as a branching point instead of fate or something that's just meant to be or the course of history. When I was talking to some people about Elsinore the other day, they said that tragedy has fallen out of favor. Now, you studied tragedy specifically. Would you say that that was true? And if it is, why do you think we don't want to read or watch tragic stories anymore? And should we? Do we need them? I think tragedy has fallen out of favor right now. I think the world goes through moments of, of joy and tragedy, and we seek them in equal part. And it tends to be that we're looking for whatever catharsis we're not experiencing right now. So we're living in a time when the world feels particularly dark. Whether or not that's sort of objectively true, if you were to look at a large enough slice of history, I think is debatable. But maybe with the advent of the internet and with all of sort of the uh, unique political turning points that seem to be happening now around the world, I think it feels like kind of like hashtag darkest timeline stuff. And I, I feel like right now everyone's just looking for escapism. Like they're looking to fantasize. Whereas, uh, you know, if, if we check back in 10 years, I think tragedy will have come back into vogue. It's really just about balancing whatever it is that you're not getting in your life. Do you think that any of Shakespeare's other plays would make good video games? I think a Midsummer Night's Dream would make an excellent dating sim. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to play a dating sim where you're just Hermia 
and having the time of your life. <laughs> Lysander and Demetrius are there too. Titania and Oberon. Like there's so many great options, really. Um, <laughs> I would play the hell out of that. Maybe that's the next project. Yeah, maybe. When people often joke, they're like, oh, when are you doing Macbeth? And I'm like, never. But uh, <laughs> Macbeth would make a great sort of, I guess, Elsinore counterpart as well. There's like kind of all the same political intrigue. And then there's really tough decisions. And there's a really powerful female character in Lady Macbeth. And there's a little bit of a fantasy element there with the witches. And there's a prophecy and all the really great things that sort of make the beginning of an excellent time loop game. And when it came to kind of actually making the game, having that time loop format, did it help make things easier in any way or did it make things more difficult? It makes it way more difficult because in a normal game, you know, so let's take the roguelike genre, for example, which is, you know, usually they're dungeon crawlers and you play this character and you are acquiring loot and power-ups and items and you go through this dungeon and you make decisions about whether to take the left path or the right path or whether to kill this this monster or that monster. And if you die, you die and your character loses everything uh, and you just start the game over. That's actually a very easy state because while you have to generate the world uh, of branching choices for the player you don't have to retain anything that they've done like all of that state gets thrown out the window when they die with a time looping game the main character knows that they're in a time loop so there's the expectation that every time you reset the state some part of that state persists which is the character's memory of the time loop so all of the information that Ophelia has spiders the world in a million ways, and it kind of creates this web over time that just gets larger and larger and larger. And that's part of the fantasy of the game is that you can unlock new outcomes that you couldn't before. You can reach new new parts of sort of Ophelia's journey, but it makes it endlessly complicated because we have to track not just what have you told other characters in this loop, but what do you know about them based on Ophelia's experiences with them in the past and past loops? Does that character remember those loops? We have some characters in the game that do remember and do know that Ophelia's in a time loop, and we have some characters that don't. So some of their state persists and others don't. And tracking all of that is, a, is the bulk of the work, really, when writing this game. Yeah, it sounds incredibly complicated. <laughs> it is. <laughs> It seems like players crave this kind of choice-based narrative, though. People go on and on about wanting their choices to feel more meaningful in games and wanting more possible consequences. And it seems like maybe a time loop narrative in which the time frame is so much shorter than a regular game is really the only way to explore that kind of thing in this much depth. Do you think that's true? And is there a sense in which really linear games can't do as much in terms of choice and consequence as looping games because they have to be so long in order to provide players with what they see as enough content. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not to mention that in a lot of those games, like if you look at something like The Witcher or Dragon Age, which are sort of like your bread and butter RPGs, it's not just the story decision points that are really the draw there. It's also the fantasy of building up your character's power kit and abilities over time mm. and being able to take on bigger and better foes. And that's that's content. Like it really is about where you're making those trade-offs. Like with a time looping game, usually it's a pure focus on story Story, but those games, those single player games, are making an intentional decision to lean into a different fantasy, which is that notion of building up your character over a long period of time and just kind of maintaining that linear snowball as opposed to taking on a shorter but much, much denser chunk of world building or story building. 
Right. And did that ever present its own challenges with Elsinore? So for instance, you can form relationships with other characters in the game. You know, Ophelia can hook up with Othello or other characters, but obviously she only has four days. Was that ever a restricting limitation for you? Absolutely. It's a real struggle to write a really passionate romance that players care about that can unfold over four days because that's an incredibly short period of time. It's basically a couple of one night stands. (laughs) So really we have some branches where Ophelia can experience the same romance and it will change a little bit the second time that she's gone through because she has the memory of that romance. But the problem is that the other character doesn't remember. So it's almost a bittersweet thing in some ways. Hmm. And Something that we tried to land on with all of the romance paths is that Ophelia doesn't know if this is sort of like true love. She's never sort of committing really hard to this person. Uh, We leave it open to the player to choose if they want to sort of exit the time loop and pursue a forever life with that particular romantic partner, which they can do. And that is sort of where we try to hammer on the amount of development that Ophelia would have had with that character in the long term. But in the short term, it really is more like you're writing a fling, which is what these romances are. Sure, except maybe the other person doesn't know because they don't know that Ophelia only has a few days. Exactly. So, you know, you have characters saying, oh, well, you know, next week we'll do so-and-so and Ophelia knows that she's not going to get to next week. So ah. that takes a different spin on things for her. That's so interesting. And I'm only realizing this as we're talking about it. So I've watched Groundhog Day and I recently watched Live, Die, Repeat. And in both of those movies, you have a male protagonist who's reliving time, who has a romantic interest in a woman. And in both cases, I perceived the romance as creepy because the male protagonist was kind of using knowledge that he'd gained of the female character without her knowing it because she kept being reset. But in Elsinore, I never really felt that. Do you think that I'm just biased because Ophelia is a woman or did you take that into account when you were writing these romances? I don't know. I mean, to some degree, I think it's that in Ophelia's world, there is such a power disparity between men and women that it's almost a little bit less inappropriate for a woman to sort of say, hey, I'm interested in you romantically and come forward with that. Because I think it's a little bit different from like a modern day setting where there's sort of a different expectation and sort of men and women have more of an equal social status. It's very unusual for a woman in Ophelia's time to be as as sexually forward as she is in some of these romance (laughs) paths. Uh, And that was an intentional choice on our part. We really wanted to make it clear that Ophelia is consenting to these situations and that there is no ambiguity there. So characters will sort of express an interest in her, but it's up to you, the player, to kind of really aggressively pursue that. I think it also is a little bit different in an active medium like games, where you, the player, are sort of the vehicle for the character versus a passive medium like film, where you're sort of watching this other character have their own agency that is divorced from yours. And so you're free to sort of judge that character, like in Groundhog Day or Live, Die, Repeat, as sort of a separate entity from yourself. But it's when it's you making those decisions who are you going to judge for what you do? (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good point. (laughs) (laughs) So we talked there about Ophelia being a lot more bold than she would have been allowed to be in the original text. What other changes have you made? Yeah. So the first thing we did was we uh, we added a couple more female characters that don't exist in the original play. Um, The original lineup of the cast, you know, Hamlet's an extremely male-dominated character lineup, which is 
not unusual for Shakespeare's work, but it just was a world that we felt like didn't offer as much sort of uh, diversity of experience as we were looking for out of this cast. And from there, we sort of expanded. We, you know, we were like, well, why stop here? What else do we want to do to the canonical cast? So Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are women, uh, of course. And we sort of took any liberty to say, well, if there's like a gap in this character's textual canonical history, then let's fill that gap with something interesting. So uh, Horatio is a particularly sort of conflicted character in the original story. It's unclear. He sort of is described as a foot soldier and a scholar at points. And then the way that he describes what he saw on the battlefield when King Hamlet fought King Fortinbras back in the day, it's as if he was there. So clearly he's been a military man, but then people rely on him, you know, for, for being an educated man as well. So it's kind of a little bit strange. So we leaned into that and we're like, well, Horatio's just had a really wild life. Like he's been all over the place. He's traveled everywhere. And we kind of really built that into his character. And he, you know, his father was from India and he was born in Venice and kind of has emigrated all over. Laertes and Ophelia obviously are, are half black. Their mother emigrated from Spain so basically anywhere that we saw a gap, we tried to just say, what's the most interesting thing that we can add to that, which really fleshes out this character in a way that we haven't seen done in other productions of Hamlet. Do you have a favorite character from the game? Man, I am. Um, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I love Lady Brit. Oh. She was my favorite character to write. She starts off as just horrible to Ophelia and this is something that we've seen playtesters react to really intensely they say god why is Brit so mean to me <laughs> and it's kind of got this classic like mean girls bent to it where she's just the school bully who picks on Ophelia but over time as you start to learn more about her and what she's been through and what Ophelia's been through with her their relationship starts to deepen a little bit and kind of reach a place where I think it becomes much more nuanced than it starts out as. Uh, and Brit's also a really fun character to write. I, you know, I was somebody who kind of like Ophelia, I just got picked on a lot as a kid and, you know, the cool girls in school never liked me. And I really resented that. And I had terrible relationships with them. And then as I got older, I realized that I, those girls are going through the exact same stuff that you are and you're all in it together. Uh, and if you don't help each other out, then, then there's really no point to any of this. So when I came through those experiences and learned to befriend those girls and to make them my allies, I felt like I became a much stronger person for it. And that's kind of what I tried to communicate with the relationship that Brit and Ophelia have. And very effectively, it's kind of like the subversion of high school teen movies that we're seeing going on at the moment. I don't know if you've seen Booksmart, but I was really astonished by the direction that they took that in with the bullies at the beginning of the film. I have seen Booksmart and I loved Booksmart for that exact same reason. The new Jumanji movie actually did the same thing too, where it has, you know, sort of the nerdy girl, uh, cool girl dynamic, and then they, they work things out by the end of the movie. Oh, interesting. I haven't seen that one. I'll have to add it to my list. <laughs> you tweeted recently about writing some of your own personal experience into the game, uh, specifically into Ophelia. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. Um... I grew up with a reasonably sort of turbulent home life as a kid, and I felt a lot of the time growing up as though there were things happening in my life that were out of my control. And I 
I was sort of, I moved from home to home a lot. It was really tough. And so that feeling of being the powerless person at the edge of the room, as you see bad things happening and to people that you love and you have no ability to stop it is a feeling that I am very familiar with. And so what I wanted to do was to give women who have been in my situation the knowledge that there can be something different. And that was something that I had to learn to give to myself. I had to learn how to push my way into these kinds of conversations, to try and get to know people, to try and understand what makes them tick, and to try and make something better of my situation because the alternative was being a passive victim to it and letting it consume me. And that is sort of what happens to Ophelia in the original play. She is a passive victim of her circumstances and she loses her mind and she commits suicide. And I, I didn't want that for her. I, I saw something in her that rang true when I first read Hamlet as a kid and I didn't like what I saw. Mm-hmm. So when I came back to her as an adult, I said, it's not going to be like that. I'm going to write something different for her because in writing something different for her, maybe I can write something different for the women who come after me, who play this game. How have people responded to the game and has it been what you expected? So far, it's been really lovely. We've had so many people writing us and saying that this game has had an enormous impact on them, that uh, we've seen people streaming the game and have some really touching moments while playing it. So far, given that this was a side project that we were kind of pursuing on our weekends for so long, it's just really a strange experience to have it out there in the world and to have total strangers who are not your friends and family that you came to have playtest experiencing the game and forming their own opinions of it and seeing that all of the weird experimental things that you did, uh, that you didn't know whether they were going to land or not, they all ended up landing in one way or another. You know, we've had some people react to the game, I think, in in ways that uh, are surprising. Like something I will see is people analyzing things into the game and the the stories in the game that that I didn't intend as the person who wrote them. And I'm looking at that. And usually they're positive. It's sort of like, well, you know, the reason that Brit's so mean to Ophelia is because of this thing that happens later and it explains all of it. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I didn't think about that until now. They're not wrong. I just had never thought about that before. And it now makes me think a little bit about maybe how Shakespeare would feel if people were to start, if he were to come back to life and see what people have sort of done in picking apart his work, how much of it would he say, yep, that's totally what I intended. And how much of it would he say, oh, my God. Uh, Yeah. So I didn't mean for that to be a thing, but I'm so glad that you got this much out of it. (laughs) What do you think he would think of Elsinore? I think he'd be pleased. I mean, really. um, So one of the main questions that we get from people is, oh, have you been to Kronborg Castle in Denmark? And have you actually done the historical site research? And have you read all of the the texts and all of the deep analysis of Hamlet? And what scholarship do you turn to? And Shakespeare did none of that. Shakespeare had never been to Denmark either. (laughs) Uh, He he was not a sort of super-formed scholar. He was just a man trying to take these old and very classic stories and revitalize them and make them fresh and new and make people happy with them and entertain audiences of people uh, that he really just, he wanted to bring some joy to. And I think that's what we are trying to do as well here. And I think if he could see that, he would appreciate it. 
If you have an idea for a game based on the works of Shakespeare, tweet us at TalkingSimPod. If you too love time loop games, make sure to catch the previous episode of the podcast on Outer Wilds. Subscribe to Talking Simulator in your favourite podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. If you want to hear more about Elsinore, I played it on Radio 4 Front Row. You can find a link on my website, jordanweber.com. Katie can be found on Twitter at kchironis, K-C-H-I-R-O-N-I-S. I'm at Jerrica Weber. Our music is by Jazz Mickle. You can find her at Jazz Mickle. Talking Simulator is edited by Lemmington's loveliest audio person, Dan Parks. If you need to make something sound good, you can find him at Dan C. Parks. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Talk again soon. And I was like, oh my God, it feels like you're playing a game on the radio, which I did not think could be a thing, <laughs> but it was amazing.